0: Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
1: Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more.
2: The New York Historical Society podcast, For the Ages, explores the rich and complex history of the United States with host David M. Rubenstein, engaging the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America.
3: Alan Shaw Taylor, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, joins David in a two-part conversation on the early decades of the American Republic. And in the episode, Virginia Dynasty, Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation, author Lynn Cheney examines the friendships and rivalries within the so-called Virginia Dynasty. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify.
2: Now, I don't know if you've heard, but New York City is an expensive place to live these days. So we thought it might be time to revisit the story of the city's most famous district of wealth and luxury, Fifth Avenue. But for about a hundred years— this avenue was mostly residential, but residences of the most extravagant kind. The following episode is a re-edited, remastered version of two past Barry Boys shows, The Rise and the Fall of the Fifth Avenue Mansions. But combined, they happen to tell the whole story of Fifth Avenue, from the initial development of streets in the 1820s to the transformation of Midtown Fifth Avenue into a mecca of high-end shopping in the 1930s. This show could also serve as a primer to the HBO series The Gilded Age, the official podcast of which is co-hosted by my regular co-host, Tom Myers. And if you'd like to see some of these surviving houses for yourself, check out one of the very popular Gilded Age mansion tours, Presented by Bowery Boys Walks. Go to boweryboyswalks.com for more information. Now, enjoy the show. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're taking you on a journey down the ritziest street in New York City. Fifth Avenue, uh, known better today for department stores and boutiques, and a perfect place to visit because the holidays are rolling around.
3: Right, it's very seasonally appropriate because when one thinks Fifth Avenue, one does think of the... Extravagant show windows of the department stores, strolling by Sacks, Lord and Taylor. However, Fifth Avenue is also famous and cherished as an address, uh, these days for apartment buildings, but for most of the 19th century and very early 20th century as the addresses of spectacular homes, mansions, and townhouses of some of the country's wealthiest families. It was
2: once called millionaires row because so many people of great wealth of new wealth lived along the street in houses that are almost impossible to imagine today
3: so today in in this episode we'll be tackling the story of how fifth avenue developed uh physically how was it built but also how and where were these mansions constructed It's interesting because this is a story that moves geographically and chronologically at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, we will be
2: starting the show north of Washington Square, and we will be ending the show at the top of Central Park, but staying the whole time on Fifth Avenue. However, we will be getting to the bottom of how Fifth Avenue then transitions in the 20th century from this hoity-toity residential area to a commercial district, and then how the street name, Fifth Avenue, kind of becomes a brand in itself.
3: How did these residences, and especially those mansions in the 40s and 50s, how did they find themselves demolished and replaced? So hop in our carriage as we roll along New
2: York's wealthiest street and witness the rise of the Fifth Avenue mansions. So, Tom, let's situate this show. Of course, it is on Fifth Avenue, which is the spine of New York. But Fifth Avenue, where is it located? And what is its importance to the New York City grid plan?
3: Fifth Avenue is 6.75 miles long. It stretches from Washington Square north at its base to 142nd street straight up the middle of manhattan dividing addresses on side streets between east and west an address that is on west 47th street will be west of fifth avenue as opposed to east 47th street which would be east of fifth avenue now uh, notably fifth avenue appears in the commissioner's plan of 1811 although it was obviously not constructed all at once. Even though this plan was adopted in 1811, it took many decades for the streets to actually be constructed. And that's because at the time of the plan, uh, much of the city was located south of Canal Street. So the first section of Fifth Avenue wouldn't even be built until the 1820s. The first section from Washington Square Park North to 13th Street opened in 1824. So we're about to spend a lot of time
2: talking about people with a lot of money, and Fifth Avenue will be where they are drawn to. But before the 1820s, before Fifth Avenue existed, uh, where was their little enclave here in the city?
3: In the 1820s, many wealthy families were living down around Battery Park. Um, There were others living on Broadway. There were some newly fashionable streets farther north near Bond Street. And let's not forget about, you know, the people of Means who also lived on farms and estates um, in these upper reaches of the city that were still not really considered part of the city yet. Uh, We've talked about Richmond Hill, Hamilton Grange, farms that were owned by the Stuyvesants and, and many others. So there were many prominent landowners who had farms and vast estates way up here. Many of them, of course, would cash in in a big way in the decades to come. Thanks to the grid plan. Right.
2: So the first section of Fifth Avenue opened in 1824.
3: Yes, it opened from just north of the burial ground that predated Washington Square Park Mm -hmm. up to 13th Street in 1824, and that covered the old Minetta Brook that used to babble down through here and cut through the burial ground. And later, you know, was covered over when they transformed uh, the burial ground into a military parade ground in 1826. And, you know, just five years later, the University of the City of New York uh, would arrive along the eastern section of that parade ground. That would, of course, become
2: New York University, NYU, which is still around Washington Square Park today.
3: All over. Mm -hmm. Yes. And prominent families... Um, and wealthy merchants were drawn to the perimeters of this parade ground, first to the southern side and then along the north. In the 1830s, um, there were fine Greek revival homes that were built all along the northern edge of the of the parade ground, and many of these fine homes are still with us today. It's one of the earliest collection of
2: townhouses that still survive in all of New York.
3: And built with such uniformity.
2: Yeah, they all look exactly the same. And that today, many of those are part of the
3: NYU system as well. But I'm taking us away now, Greg, from Washington Square Park. Because Washington Square Park serves as the base of Fifth Avenue, which which rises from the middle of it.
2: Considering the money that would be on Fifth Avenue, you can see it like a little seed that begins at Washington Square Park and then grows northward.
3: Yes, and there were some prominent families. We're talking here in the 1830s as people are moving along the perimeter of the park here. Well, in the same time, families started constructing fine residences at at this first stretch of Fifth Avenue. Families like the Rhinelander family, who built at the northwest corner of the park in Fifth Avenue, at 1415 Washington Square Park, in a home that was designed by Richard Upjohn, who had designed Trinity Church— The home faced right into Washington Square Park and amazingly survived until 1953.
2: And the Rhinelanders were an old family that were sugar manufacturers during the Revolutionary War in particular.
3: And another old family that's name still hangs over the area today were the Brevoorts. Mm-hmm. They were an old Dutch family who'd been living here since the 1630s. They would be farmers, but amass really their fortune by holding on to their land and by watching their farmland become part of the city. And it is not an exaggeration to say that old Henry Brevoort um, in the first decades of the 19th century was not happy about the grid plan.
2: His old orchard was on 4th Avenue and 11th Street. To this day, 11th Street does not cut through between Broadway and 4th Avenue because he managed to block the road from going through his orchard. And today that land is owned by Grace Church.
3: He wasn't happy about it at the time, but his family, of course, and subsequent generations would be very happy about the fact that the streets were getting rammed through the old orchard uh, because they would cash out in a big way. When he died in 1841, his family's land, which was about 11 acres north of today's Washington Square Park, was valued at over a million dollars in 1841. So they were making money off of
2: this new heightened real estate value. And then, of course, they were living on Fifth Avenue
3: as well. Yes, his son, Henry Jr., and his children occupied several homes Uh, along or near 5th Avenue, including Henry Jr.'s Greek Revival-style home, which was at the northwest corner of 5th and Ninth Street. And that survived until 1925. It's a beautiful Mm. mansion. So we have the Rhinelanders, we
2: have the Brevoorts. These are old New York families that are being attracted to 5th Avenue because of their association to the row along Washington Square here.
3: Right, but but also because here at the base of 5th Avenue— the lots were larger and there was nothing built yet. So they were at liberty to build their dream homes. Sky's the limit. And during the 1830s and 40s, other big names would move into the neighborhood like James Lennox, who built at 53 Fifth Avenue at the northeast corner of 12th Street. Uh, And in there, he would start amassing his incredible library. And as these families moved into this new neighborhood, Churches followed, such as the Episcopal Church of the Ascension, which opened on 10th Street in 1841, and the Presbyterian Church, which opened in 1846 between 11th and 12th. So the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterians, they were catering to these wealthy families who were constructing their new residences along this stretch. It's interesting how houses of worship
2: become very instrumental to these wealthy neighborhoods and become anchors for them.
3: Well, because also, for the most part, people were walking to church. So they also wanted their local church to reflect the, you know, the grandeur of their homes. Um, now, was it all residences? No, something else would follow that's very interesting, hotels. And the first one, unsurprisingly, was called the Brevort Hotel. Uh, it opened in 1854 at the northeast corner of 8th and 5th. And soon after, there would also be restaurants, including Delmonico's, which opened in 1861, in a former mansion, which was located at the northeast corner of 5th and 14th.
2: Now, if I recall from a podcast I recorded a few years ago on Mark Twain's New York, mm-hmm. I believe he later in life lived in a mansion here on 5th Avenue in this like lower quadrant.
3: Yes, at 9th Street. He lived at 21 5th at the very end of his life, from 1904 to 1908.
2: What I find really amusing about this is we're about to speak about the grand Gilded Age, uh, about the influx of money that's coming into the city. Mark Twain was the man who coined the phrase Gilded Age in a story that he wrote in the 1860s.
3: And he was an easily recognizable person walking the streets in his white suits because he believed that they were more hygienic. So imagine seeing... Mark Twain in his white suit,
2: just strolling along Fifth Avenue here at the turn of the century.
3: But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to rewind 1830s and 40s. We have the first big families moving into this stretch of Fifth that goes up to about 14th Street. Mm -hmm. And it only went that far because that's as far as it had been constructed. Now, in 1837, Fifth was extended from 14th up to 23rd Street. So there was another section opened. But development, of course, didn't happen immediately. It really wasn't until Madison Square opened at 23rd and 5th in 1847. Uh, the development along that stretch really picked up speed. And like Washington Square, also the development around the square because it would attract Again, the city's top families to townhouses lining the square.
2: Well, as would happen throughout this story, you know, the newest wealthy people would want to live in an area that was newer and finer and that they could design a place themselves. But they wanted to stay near Fifth Avenue, which by this point already had a bit of a cachet to it.
3: And the area around Madison Square would stay chic through really the 1880s. But when, you know, when we think about those blocks, right, the area North Washington Square has a very residential feel. Mm -hmm. But when you go from 14th up to 23rd, it's a different mood, right? Oh, yeah. And it was even back then, you know, in the 1860s, there was a more commercial vibe on that stretch of Fifth Avenue. There was even retail intermixed among some of the houses there was retail, there were apartment buildings that opened uh, in the 1870s, and there was also the Fifth Avenue Hotel right next to Madison Square, which opened in 1859 and became the social epicenter of the city.
2: Yeah, it really was the center so much so that its rooms would frequently be filled with political machinations on the national level. So this was kind of the heart of New York, especially during the Civil War and a little bit afterwards. But Fifth Avenue is, of course, galloping up past it.
3: Just when you think you know where it ends, they just keep extending (laughs) it, you know? And families kept constructing on the newly opened blocks that they could get their hands on. Families with a lot of money, like Greg, the Astor family. For it was in the 1850s that brothers William Astor and John Jacob Astor III both built family townhouses, mansions on the same block next to each other on the western side of fifth avenue between 33rd and 34th street william Astor's was a handsome four-story brownstone that was constructed in 1856 and john jacob astor the third built a brick mansion two years later in
2: 1858 now wait a minute the 1850s Mm -hmm. so i mean but the center of new york culture and society was
3: further down south. That almost makes them seem like pioneers. Yeah, They had lived down on Lafayette Street, and they sensed that they were kind of in a backwater at that point. The center of society had really moved and shifted much farther north, and if they were going to stay in the center of the city's social life, they needed to get ahead of it physically.
2: So they're here at... 34th, and 5th. And these must have been hugely sumptuous houses because they had all the space, right? Except
3: when you look at the photos, you know, I was sort of surprised at how dignified, conservative these townhouses were. They don't really strike me as extravagant. That would follow soon after and still in the same neighborhood. For example, just across 34th Street from the Astors, A.T. Stewart, the department store giant, built himself an enormous 55-room marble mansion that was completed in 1869. I'll read the description from, from a book called Fifth Avenue, The Best Address by Jerry Patterson. Stewart's Fifth Avenue house, which had its long side on West 34th Street, was an extraordinary creation for a childless couple who seldom, if ever, entertained. 55 rooms, many of them lined with marble. The ceilings, even in the bedrooms, were nearly 19 feet high. Every room was a thicket of rosewood furniture and tufted upholstery and bric-a-brac. Although there was an art gallery, the Stuart's vast collection of paintings, at least 179 works, many of them colossal size, white marble statuary, and bronzes overflowed into every room. When wall space ran out, paintings were angled against easels and even on the floor against statues. So that the house was just like an over-the-top mess. Meanwhile, these pioneers
2: of upper crust housing are only a couple blocks west Of a train line, right? Which is running up 4th Avenue. That's right.
3: So that's where we are, Greg. It's the 1850s. We've got the Astors at, you know, between 33rd and 34th on 5th, bringing society up around them. And the Astors would stay here in their homes for several decades. They would watch 5th Avenue south of them transform a bit. But say by the 1890s, they were ready to keep moving north.
2: Not to disparage them, but let's just say by the 1890s, the Astors weren't the hottest family in the social registry.
3: Which brings us to this next point, which was a feud between said brothers, or really their children, over who the real Mrs. Astor was. Let's just say that this feud in the 1890s led to the demolition of both of these houses of Astor and the replacement first by the Waldorf Hotel in 1893 at 33rd and 5th, and then in 1897, the construction of the even more opulent Astoria Hotel. They would be joined to create the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which was the country's most famous, most over-the-top, with a thousand rooms, all kinds of banquet rooms for social engagements and balls, It was more than a hotel. It was a place to entertain, to throw lavish dinner parties. And it had been designed by Henry Hardenberg in the German Renaissance style. You can hardly believe it when you see photos of this thing.
2: And the Waldorf Astoria was able to thrive. It was the crown of New York because by that time, Fifth Avenue was the destination for the upper 10, as they say. The wealthiest and blue bloodiest of all New York families. Ew.
3: (laughs) And the Waldorf Astoria would continue to function for a number of decades. But the thing is, Greg, because we're focusing not on hotels in this show, we're focusing on the mansions of Fifth Avenue. Here we are now in 1890s. The Astors have demolished their homes here. It's not like they're leaving town. They have to build new mansions and they stay on Fifth Avenue. They just head much farther north. But back in the 1850s, when
2: the Astors first built upon this corner at 34th and 5th Avenue, unbeknownst to them, perhaps, or maybe they didn't know what they were about to start, they would open the floodgates. Suddenly, this distant northern area that's far from City Hall, this area of 5th Avenue that is barely developed, would become instantly viable, as a place to build the most extravagant homes in the United States, especially if you were a member of one of New York's favored families. We'll continue our ride up Fifth Avenue to show you some of the most ostentatious and even absurd houses that would ever be on Fifth Avenue. We'll get kicked out of those houses after this.
0: Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
2: On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today.
3: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles
2: about a lot of rich people. And so let's take a big step back and explain why there are so many more rich people in New York City starting in the 1860s and going into the rest of the century.
3: Into the Gilded Age. Yes.
2: Yes. So this this period is known as the Gilded Age, as we've said. It has a lot to do with Money that came into New York during the Civil War and afterwards. A lot of people were enriched by the war
3: and, of course, reconstruction. It was New York banks, New York-controlled factories that were funding the rebuilding efforts. Then you had the ramifications
2: of the Industrial Revolution, which was changing all sorts of manufacturing in a variety of different industries. Resulting in a lot of magnets.
3: Right, There were a lot of magnets being thrown around There was a steel magnet, there was a copper magnet You know, every magnet Or Titan, you know, made their fortune Came to New York And built themselves a lavish residence Was
2: there a refrigerator magnet? There were several of them <laughs> Notably, a family that I'm going to mention A lot in this podcast Just generally speaking, the Vanderbilts I speak. I feel like I speak about the Vanderbilts more than my own family At a certain point <laughs> We'll talk about that after the show, The Vanderbilts built their vast wealth on transportation, first from ferries and steamships, and then, of
3: course, eventually the railroad. We talked about the Astors. They built their fortune on, well, initially, beaver trading, Mm -hmm. uh, but then acquiring great land and a fortune from the land, but then getting into the hotel business, too. Long before the Waldorf Astoria, they were operating the Astor House downtown. And, you know, and finally,
2: just real estate itself. As the land becomes more valued, those who own
3: it are making a lot more money. I find it interesting. You know, we were talking about the Astors living at 34th across the street from A.T. Stewart. They looked down on A.T. Stewart because he was in trade. You know, he was was basically, in their eyes, a glorified shopkeeper who had made it big. And they were landed, like landed gentry, you know, as if it was like old Europe or something. Not really appreciating the fact that just a couple generations before, you know, the man who built their vast fortune was a trader himself himself in beavers.
2: And was himself treated this way by the older families. All this to say that within a couple decades, from the moment that the Astors built their mansions here at 34th and 5th in the late 1850s to about the 1880s, this area... From 5th Avenue, 34th Street, up to 59th Street will radically transform. Now, if you lived in New York in the 1860s, this would have been quite a shocking turn for you. You would have perhaps known this area of mid-Manhattan for, you know, the old botanical garden that sat here in the early 19th century. You might know it for the old Jesuit monastery that sat here.
3: Wow, you make it sound so idyllic, Greg, but all of that in the mid-century was just replaced by rich people moving farther north? Is that what's going on? Right.
2: Eventually, that's correct. During the 1860s, in 1870s, the greatest concentration of these mansions would have been just north of the Astors in the neighborhood we call Murray Hill, 5th Avenue between 34th and 42nd Street. And some of this, of course, spilling over even onto Madison Avenue, which was just east This transformation happened so rapidly that in 1863, that was the Civil War draft riots. And do you remember one of the most onerous, most horrible moments was when rioters burnt down the the children's orphanage?
3: Near today's Bryan Park. Right. Well, that was at
2: Fifth Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Street, okay? 1863. A decade later, most of the, the blocks surrounding that, of course, that had been completely demolished. Now that land was valuable property for the Nouveau Riche. So that's the 1860s, 1870s. So up to 42nd Street, that concentration is here at Murray Hill. After the 1880s, though, with most of those lots sold, like there wasn't an inch of space, To give to another rich person. So then those trendier lots moved north of 42nd Street to 59th Street. And of course, eventually further. What's especially interesting about this new wealthy development that's happening right here at the Gilded Age is that it's being confined by some rather unusual borders that were shaping the city at this time. Millionaire's Row, as they would eventually call it, was actually just, I would say, a a rather narrow corridor.
3: Wait, what were these unusual borders that you're alluding to here? What was constraining uh, Fifth Avenue? Well, just imagine that
2: you were a new homeowner. You want to build a house. You're going to sink a lot of fortune into building a brand new house. Okay. Here are the things that you're contending with around you. Say you're at 42nd and 5th, for okay. instance. Okay. Two blocks to the east is Grand Central Station, of course, later Grand Central Terminal. And for decades, their tracks were unburied. They were at street level or then they later would be like lowered into the ground, but they wouldn't be covered. OK, so you had okay, this so
3: loud and messy,
2: yeah, a huge scar. And so for uh, many years, there was no wealthy development into that period until, of course, those tracks would be buried. Now, by the 1870s, if you're this wealthy homeowner at 42nd and 5th. yeah, another barrier to your finery, is over on 6th Avenue, just one avenue west, because in the 1870s, they built an elevated train that ran up all the way to 59th Street. Thus, all the property values around the elevated train were obviously much lower.
3: But the 6th Avenue elevated stopped at Central Park, right? So was that a barrier to the growth of 5th Avenue as well? Well,
2: initially it wasn't a deterrent
3: because in 1858, when that
2: southern section was opened, no one really even thought about building a new house near Central Park at that time. However, as people began building up Fifth Avenue, then that proximity to the park became a rather desired destination because now you would be facing into the park and all of its beauty by the 1880s it was almost like 5th Avenue was a a promenade into the park itself and the rich populations around it even affected the dynamic of the park in the early days it was a place for the wealthy to ride their carriages through and there were certainly no signs of playgrounds or other quote unquote common park features that we know today. So Central Park in a way became a de facto component of Fifth Avenue living.
3: Right from the moment that it opened to the public in the late 1850s. Yeah, so now imagine this corridor, Mm -hmm. this
2: Millionaire's Row, topped with Central Park, and then the whole avenue embraced by huge mansions, exceptional townhouses, and of course, churches and hotels that sort of were kept up in the same spirit as those houses. This, in the Gilded Age, became the domain of the rich. Now, there were other enclaves of wealthy people in New York City, like you mentioned. We forgot to mention Gramercy Park, which was another really big one. But this
3: became the center of wealth and the center of rigid societal practices. And by rigid society, you're you're referring to like Mrs. Astor's four hundred list of you know the. The, the families that had made the list were on the list, were off the list. Right.
2: Like the social progress of the wealthy during this period, the arranged marriages into these families, almost like business transactions, the doggy dog world of just trying to advance through society for your own personal gain and the legacy of your family.
3: Which is often romanticized and is, you know, present in countless 19th century novels. The
2: world of Edith Wharton plays
3: out here on Fifth Avenue.
2: So these folk, these social climbing, wealthy folk, built hundreds of sumptuous structures around here in a variety of different styles, largely made of brownstone and marble, but they were not in anything that I would call an American style, which kind of didn't exist. It was all homage to European living, the standard bearers of architectural style that would become known as the Beaux-Arts.
3: Ah, there we go. And at the risk of being repetitive here, you're talking about these sumptuous residences that were located along Fifth Avenue between 42nd Street and 59th Street. Yes. Because there are still existing structures and mansions that were built north of 59th Street, and I feel like those are easy to conjure in the mind, those over-the-top mansions. But these, I'm having a harder time because really they don't, for the most part, exist any longer. And these predated
2: those mansions. I mean, today you think Fifth Avenue, you think, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue, you think Rockefeller Center. But strip all of this away and just imagine block after block of single family homes. Some of them would be in a traditional brownstone style. Like a townhouse. Sure, but then others would be freestanding houses surrounded by gardens. According to Michael Catherines in the book Great Houses of New York, quote, these aristocratic houses were more than just large. They were presentation stages for spectacular trappings of the ruling class. So it's actually unusual to think of a quote-unquote urban mansion today. You know, most large houses were on estates in upper Manhattan or in other places. You didn't see this kind of architecture with such audacity to be placed on an entire block, for instance.
3: Well, for one reason, because you were so close to the sidewalk. Anybody Mm -hmm. could just walk by and look in your windows and because of that you know many of the primary entrances were actually off of the street level you had to walk up to the main entrance to get off the street level so that people couldn't just peek in at you in your ballroom.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting, this rural versus urban dynamic, because these houses look like they should have been out in a grand estate surrounded by nothing but nature, right? These houses would have large staffs. They would have dozens of rooms decorated in tapestries and artwork of all different kinds, But they were in the middle of New York, and they needed practical elements designed for them. So you had alleyways for trash collection. You had connections to sewer and, of course, later electrical systems. These were components of these large houses that you didn't quite have in more of these like ultra-wealthy enclaves. Like, say, Newport, where the houses were just essentially surrounded by lush acreage.
3: You were literally surrounded here, if not attached to, other opulent homes. In many cases, you needed them because you did
2: share certain services.
3: Okay, so I'm seeing it now, stretching from 42nd up to 59th, just beautiful townhouses on both sides of the avenue. Right, both
2: sides of the avenue. Now, there were a few structures that were not homes, but very few. But very notable. One of them was down on 42nd Street and Fifth Avenue, actually. That's where I live. (laughs) That's where you live. Yeah, your theoretical you lives on that corner. Well, if you had lived there before 1900, you would have lived across the street from the Murray Hill Reservoir, which was a gigantic container of water housed in an Egyptian inspired reservoir. It was part of the Croton Aqueduct system. Now, it was gone by 1900, but imagine it was surrounded by large expensive homes and they were staring into this reservoir they would of course turn the reservoir into something elegant uh, with a little strolling path along the top of it more importantly to the whole neighborhood as we had alluded to earlier were the churches in this new moneyed district the most prominent being St. Patrick's Cathedral between 50th and 51st on 5th Avenue then you had St. Thomas's Church at 53rd had been there since 1870. Then Fifth Avenue Presbyterian, which was constructed in 1875 at 55th Street and Fifth Avenue. So you actually have a lot of these beautiful marble churches mixed here in between the houses.
3: So it is a leafy, affluent residential district with churches and beautiful townhouses And some standalone mansions. And some
2: standalone mansions. Now, this would create an interesting atmosphere because when did you most likely go to church? On Sundays. So if all of these families are leaving to go to the church on Sundays, what became a kind of unusual tradition? But The Sunday promenade
3: along Fifth Avenue. They wouldn't just walk to church. They would sort of... Promenade, they
2: would prance, perhaps even because you weren't just going to church to have spiritual guidance. You were also representing your family, you were showing off
3: your Sunday best. And we're taking some broad strokes here. I'm sure that there were some people going to church just for the spiritual benefit. Of oh, of, of course. Of course. But many
2: were going to look at the fashions. So and this is an era that, you know, we didn't have fashion magazines per se, and you didn't have photography in which to look at the latest fashions. So people... There were some daguerreotypes. There were daguerreotypes, though. I'm sure everyone in Fifth Avenue had a daguerreotype. Down at the Waldorf Astoria, Peacock Alley, that was one of the first spots that was famous for people gathering just to look at wealthy people's fashions and clothes. The same would happen here on Fifth Avenue and, you know, their beautiful hats and everything, and especially on Easter from Harper's Weekly in 1905. Quote, such a vast number of people come on Easter to see the Fifth Avenue churchgoers walk home from the church that the avenue in the 50s begins at noon to feel like Park Row at 5 o'clock when the Brooklynites begin to feel for the Brooklyn entrance. <laughs> Meaning it was, like a,
3: it was like a traffic jam. Like Grand here. Central Station. But people were coming just to watch people leave church? Yes. <laughs> it seems extraordinary today
2: because we have other things to amuse us. <laughs> but back then, that was an exciting thing to, to spend your Sunday morning before they had brunch. This, of course, would evolve over the years into the annual Easter bonnet parade procession that happens on Fifth Avenue.
3: A tradition that still exists today. Although today it's just for Easter, I I didn't realize that it used to be every Sunday. Well, there would be
2: guidebooks
3: as early as the 1880s that would
2: draw tourists to head to Fifth Avenue to see this spectacle. In fact, by the 1890s, there were even guided tours of Fifth Avenue, just guiding tourists up the street to marvel at the wealthy in their latest Paris fashions. And, of course, to look at all of these sumptuous houses.
3: Wow, I love the thought of tourists in the 1890s taking a guided tour of Midtown. <laughs> uh, can you, by any chance, Greg, give us a... A little guided tour? Oh, yeah.
2: I'll be your tour guide. Um, Let's just sit ourselves somewhere vaguely in the 1890s somewhere. And let's walk by some notable historic homes that I think you would like to see. Fantastic. We will start at 511 Fifth Avenue. That's at 43rd Street. Okay. Okay. This mansion that sat here was owned by William Boss Tweed. Oh, The famous boss of Tammany Hall, who eventually got arrested and convicted for his mass crimes of corruption and graft. However, do you remember the portion of his story? And by the way, we have a whole podcast on this as well. But there's a portion of his story where he
3: escapes from jail. Yes. Or escape from his home when he ran home to get some more clothes. Right. Right. He, so
2: this is the home he escaped from. Years later... This house was purchased by a man named Richard T. Wilson, who was known for a few things, perhaps most principally as the patriarch of a family who married well. His daughter married Cornelius Vanderbilt III, another daughter married into the Goulet family, then a son married into the Astor family. Okay, And they all lived here on Fifth Avenue. They were actually known as the marrying Wilsons.
3: Mothers would shield their children as they walked by. <laughs> Here comes a
2: Wilson. Oh, I should also have mentioned, by the way, that Wilson um, was best known as being the commissary general of the Confederate States during the Civil War. So I'll just put that there.
3: Let's keep moving,
2: shall we? Let's go up to 578 Fifth Avenue. Now, that is at the southwest corner of 47th Street. That's the entrance of the Diamond Exchange today. Now, this mansion that sat here was one of the very first mansard roofs in all of New York. (laughs) It was built by former mayor George Opdyke in 1869. Now, he had been mayor of New York City during the draft riots. In fact, I I don't believe he comes out very kindly in our retelling of the draft riots because he was kind of ineffective. But he
3: introduced New York to the mansard
2: roof? Well, yeah. So his house that sat here had the mansard roof and it had those two distinctive gas lampposts in front of it that distinguish all houses of mayors in New York City. Well, in 1880... After he died, the house was purchased by rascally financier Jay Gould. Ah. So Jay Gould lived here. And I think it's interesting when I read descriptions of this house and of him living there. They all have to point out the fact that it was an unexciting address because, of course, all of the mansions up the street had ballrooms. They were always entertaining. It was quite lively at night. But this was just Mr. Gould and his wife and his huge family. And so it was, the lights were out by like 8 p.m.
3: Wow, lights out early at the Gould House. So let's go to a more
2: notorious address, if you can imagine, up the street to the northeast corner of 5th Avenue and 52nd Street. Now that, of course, is very close to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It also happens to be the home of Anne Lohman, a.k.a. Madame Ristel. Ah, yes. The abortionist of Fifth Avenue who died here in her house in
3: 1878. She
2: committed suicide in the bathtub.
3: Spoiler alert. And we <laughs> have an entire show on Madame Ristel. Now, starting here around
2: 52nd Street and going all the way up to 59th Street, this is referred to specifically as Vanderbilt Row. For the Vanderbilt family would build all sorts of mansions up and down the street here.
3: I was wondering when we were going to get to the Vanderbilts. We've spoken at length about the Astors the Goulds, many other big families here, and we haven't really talked about the Vanderbilts. Well, this was
2: the Vanderbilts domain, the 50s. The 50s along 5th. Right. Vanderbilt Row. Now, one of the finer Vanderbilt houses here actually was across the street from Madame Ristel's old townhouse at 660 Fifth Avenue. Although the house was completed in 1882, just a few years after Rustell died. It was built for William Kissam Vanderbilt... And designed by Richard Morris Hunt. Now, this is a name that would be associated with many of the mansions up and down the street, perhaps one of the most prominent architects of this style of home. And so a lot of the houses would look somewhat similar because they were Richard Morris Hunt's house. And, of course, Hunt would design their house up at Newport or wherever their other houses were.
3: And this was not seen as a bad thing. It was was seen as an accomplishment that you could get Hunt in the first place to design your... Your palace. He, yeah, he was... He was in demand.
2: He was in demand, hotly desired. The house here was nicknamed the Petite Chateau, although it was not petite in any sense of the word that we would know. Now, opening night at the house, yes, because houses it had... had an had, opening <laughs> night? There was a ball for a house warming, perhaps you'd call it, but they were really treating it like a big party. On March 26th, 1883... Uh, held in the famed dining hall of the house, is notable because almost single-handedly, this party helped define the Vanderbilts as New York's defining aristocratic clan. Whoa, that's quite a claim. Did Mrs. Astor know about this? She was certainly invited, but she was none too pleased. Just south of this, they all just lived so close to each other. Between 51st and 52nd on the western side, Were the series of buildings known as the Vanderbilt Triple Palace at 640 and 642 Fifth Avenue? And then the third building was on 2 West 52nd Street. Dripping in Italian style. This was built for William Henry Vanderbilt, his wife, and his two daughters. And they had adjoining rooms, actually. They were separate houses, but they had rooms that could be adjoined for big fancy balls. It was also famed for its art gallery. So it was one of the first museums, really, on Fifth Avenue, albeit, you know... Not Not (laughs) open to the public. (laughs) No. The grandest, though, of all the Vanderbilt houses was up on Fifth Avenue at 1 West 57th Street on the northwest corner. This was built for Cornelius Vanderbilt II, the grandson of of Commodore, the original Vanderbilt, and was the largest private residence in New York City. It was built by Richard Morris Hunt and George Post. Post would become quite renowned for some of the early skyscraper designs in New York City. He even designed the New York World Building for the, for the newspaper, which became the tallest building in the world when it was constructed in 1889.
3: So Post was not intimidated by building a luxurious residence for Vanderbilt.
2: Not at all. And because it was the largest, mm-hmm. you know, this was really a calling card for, for these men and, of course, for the Vanderbilt. And it was constructed in 1883. It was six stories tall, because we all need homes that are six stories tall, and of course had a garden, a stable, the most luxurious residence in New York during the Gilded Age. And this house, believe it or not, would sit at this very important intersection for decades, well into the 20th century, and Vanderbilts would live here the whole time.
3: So the Vanderbilts really defined the midtown Manhattan mansions along Fifth Avenue for the Gilded Age. Right. But the funny thing is, of course, that they wouldn't stop at this boundary that you've set for us at 59th Street and the entry to Central Park uh, for Fifth Avenue obviously continues northward because really in the 1890s and then the first decade or two of the 20th century— New York's prominent families, sometimes these same families, Mm -hmm. would get rid of their midtown mansions and build them along Central Park, along Fifth Avenue from 59th up to, you know, around 96th Street. And the family who took us here to the park's edge was no less than the Astor family. Because remember that family feud that was playing out down at 34th and Fifth Avenue? Well, When Mrs. William B. Astor finally gave in uh, in 1895 and planned to demolish her home to make way for the Astoria half of the Waldorf Astoria, she obviously needed a replacement home and she hired Richard Morris Hunt, who you just mentioned, to build her a new lavish home in a French chateau style at 65th and 5th Avenue at the northeast corner And it really did look like a French chateau plunked down on the grid with its mansard roof, the loggias, enormous windows, its own art gallery as well that doubled as a ballroom. And she shared this home with her son, John Jacob, and his family. That became the new Center of New York Society. And unsurprisingly, society would follow Mrs. Astor up to the park's edge. So all of a sudden, the entrance to Central
2: Park was, I mean, it was never a real barrier anyway. But now people of great wealth would now exploit all of the real estate that ran up the eastern end of New York's greatest park.
1: For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
0: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both.
2: today. So by the Mm mid-1890s, people were beginning to look at this section of Central Park, or today's Upper East Side, as a new place to plant your wealthy manor. Right. What had been here before, during the late 19th century? Well,
3: as you mentioned, uh, by the late 1850s, Central Park had opened, or at least the Southern section had opened to the public. But for decades after that, residential development along the park would be very slow. It seemed kind of like a wild, you know, out of the way and hard to reach part of town. For example, an an arsenal was built here in 1848 at 64th Street uh, because nothing else was around it. It Mm -hmm. seemed like a safe place, you know, to house
2: military personnel. And the arsenals contained in the park today, but it predates the construction of the park, right? Yes,
3: 1848. Mm-hmm. And by the time Mrs. Astor opened up her chateau in the 1890s, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, had already been around for years. It opened on March 30th, 1880. There was another cultural institution worth mentioning uh, along the stretch here: the Lenox Library. Uh, which was constructed about the same time as the Metropolitan Museum. I spent a little bit of time talking about James Lennox, mm-hmm. who built a luxurious home in the lower stretch of Fifth Avenue, and he had acquired quite a library. He was fiercely proud of this and also very protective of who had access to seeing his books and collections. Mm-hmm. In 1877, James Lennox uh, ran out of space for his book collection downtown but as luck would have it, he had property up here in the 70s next to the park on his old Lennox family farm property. Remember that many of these old families were made quite rich because they owned vast spanses of land like farm property and right. estates.
2: And land that was only getting more valuable as the city was growing northward.
3: Right. So James Lennox hired Richard Morris Hunt to again, again to design for him a, a marble, austere library uh, between 70th and 71st on, on 5th. So that had been around for almost 20 years by the time the Astors moved up here. So
2: you had the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was within Central Park. At 80th. Mm -hmm. Then you had the Lennox Library, which was just a few blocks down Mm -hmm. on Fifth Avenue. But those were. And an arsenal south of that. And an arsenal within the park just south of that. But other than these three main structures,
3: you didn't have much going on before the 1890s. Right. There were lots of empty lots. Uh, There were also smaller, much more modest homes and farms mixed in. But there were blocks that were virtually empty. So it was a really big deal then in 1895 when the Astors built their home here between 65th and 66. And because of that, many families would follow suit and build their dream homes in the blocks around them. But like Mrs. Astor, they were leaving behind their mansions down in the 30s mm-hmm. and 40s and even 50s. And really for the next 20 years, until the 19 teens, these families would be constructing along this upper stretch, you know, the Central Park stretch of Fifth Avenue and into the side streets that lead east of the park. Mm -hmm. And this is a subplot that
2: we will touch on a little bit later in the show. I'm going to spend a few moments here speaking about specifically all of these houses that we had just seen built on Fifth Avenue for much of the 19th century. What's incredible is that by 1900, this was perhaps the most famous residential address in the United States. But by 1925, so just 25 years later, most of the houses which garnered the street that reputation would be gone. Vanished. Completely erased from the landscape. But the reputation would, would persist. Right. Now, this is a very complicated story as to how these changes occur. But let me start with the residents themselves, these wealthy families who had lived down downtown. Okay, the inherent problem with a fashionable neighborhood is that there's always the risk of something slipping out of fashion. With the new generations that were being born within these old houses of Fifth Avenue, these new generation of wealthy folk, they wanted new, fresh, modern homes. Homes that had the latest technologies, for instance. More sophisticated innovations than these old dowdy places,
3: and even opinions about interior design had changed. They they probably wanted something that looked nothing like mom and dad's house, <laughs> exactly. Mums and dads, or whatever <laughs> they called their parents. So that is, you
2: know, a a universal thing that happens everywhere in the world. Mm. But that will be the sort of undercurrent of what will be happening here on Fifth Avenue. Meanwhile, the city itself is transforming in fascinating ways. With the center of the social scene always moving north, so too were other centers, like the entertainment center. So what was happening by the 1900s, the start of the 20th century, was the theater district, the entertainment district of New York, was now encroaching upon their territory over to the west Mm. with the development of Times Square.
3: But wait a second, Times Square was two large avenues away, over on 7th Avenue—
2: But that's not so far. And the volume of theaters and entertainment venues and restaurants and clubs and everything could spill over. Yeah, they were coming over with such rapid pace. And keep in mind, they were also they were also being accompanied by electric lights, Mm. gigantic signs and, of course, all the street traffic. So with such volume, which was streaming out north, There was, of course, fears that it would find its way over here to Fifth Avenue pretty easily. Now, if you were really clamoring for a gigantic, opulent home that was new... Mm The middle of Manhattan by the beginning of the 20th century just didn't seem like the most logical place to invest and to build such a large house. And raise a family. Right. What became very appealing was, for instance, the Gold Coast, the northern shore of Long Island. Between the 1890s and the 1920s, over 500 mansions were built just on this little area, But that would take
3: so long to get to if you lived in New York.
2: Well, here we are at the start of the 20th century. And what made these places rather appealing is that they were actually close enough to the city that you were able to get here if you needed to in your brand new automobile. Ah. So by the 1920s, a lot of ultra wealthy folk had chauffeurs and they had their own cars. You know, this is the very essence of the Great Gatsby if you will, right, at, right. at this period, this, this migration to the North Shore, this transferred wealth moving from the middle of Manhattan into the vicinity of greater New York.
3: Sometimes with the same architects designing those homes.
2: Oh, yeah. Many, the the houses kind of looked the same. They were just much, much larger because you had more room.
3: Better gardens.
2: But just two examples of old families. William Kissam Vanderbilt II Mm
3: -hmm.
2: built the Eagle's Nest in Centerport, Long Island, which was built in the 1910s. Today, that's the home of the Vanderbilt Museum. Then Vincent Astor he purchased an old mansion in Port Washington in 1922 and then renamed it Cloverly Manor. They all have to have these slightly spooky names to them, don't they?
3: <laughs> I think I read a Nancy Drew book <laughs> yeah, that took place at Cloverly Manor, The Phantom of Cloverly Manor. Okay, so this explains rich families moving out to Long Island and to other places Westchester, upstate New York for country homes, weekend homes, sometimes full-time homes. Uh, And keeping places, I take it, in the city? Because this show is about Fifth Avenue mansions. Many of them had already built them in Midtown. So what happened to those
2: homes? These homes that are just sitting there, right? That are now being vacated.
3: Did they divide them up into condos?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, the idea of refitting... These mansions is not new, even as early as the mid-19th century, which you mentioned in, in the last show, Delmonico's restaurant moved into an old mansion, right? That's right, at 14th Street. So some of these houses were finding other purposes, but this trend of the fleeing wealthy would coincide with another a major development in New York City living. That would be the apartment complex, ah. and in particular, the apartment complex for the ultra-wealthy. By the start of the 20th century, and especially after World War I, it began to seem really absurd to keep an exceptionally large staff Uh, To keep employing all these people and to live in a bunch of rooms that you were never in, Mm -hmm. especially when by this time apartment living was becoming in vogue and rather trendy for the rich.
3: And we've talked about this before. We've watched countless hours of Downton Abbey where they (laughs) discuss a similar theme. And I certainly see how this could appeal to the next generation of Mm -hmm. these families. Uh, We
2: have a couple podcasts about the early days of apartment living. One of them is actually called the first apartment building, which was called the Stuyvesant, which was south of Gramercy Park. But that was the 1870s, and it took several decades for this to catch on as not only an acceptable way to live, but a preferred one.
3: And this even caught on, of course, on Central Park West and over on Upper Broadway Mm -hmm. with buildings like the Dakota and the Ansonia.
2: So thus, land that some of these older homes were standing on, particularly those immediately north of Washington Square Park, well, that land was worth a lot more if many wealthy people lived on it as opposed to just one family. So as a result, as early as the 1890s, many of these older houses were replaced by apartment buildings and by hotels.
3: But at the same time, hotels, especially hotels on Fifth Avenue— were not just places for tourists visiting New York. They were also acceptable residences uh, for those who could shell out enough cash. Yeah, I mean, I
2: find it interesting to think of the hotel, at least in this period, as really an extension of the mansion. It really explains why so many hotels were suddenly able to spill onto Fifth Avenue at the start of the 20th century ...intermixed with these actual large mansions. In fact, remember old Vanderbilt Row with Mm -hmm. all of those Vanderbilt houses? Hotels were the first glamorous interlopers to flock onto this Vanderbilt district. For instance, the St. Regis, which was constructed in 1904... At 55th and 5th Avenue. Mm -hmm. Then the Gotham Hotel, which was built on the opposite side of the street, constructed in 1905. Today, we call that the Peninsula. Ah. The Hotel New Netherland was actually built in the 1890s up on 59th Street and 5th Avenue. It would be rebuilt in 1927 to become the Sherry Netherland. And then finally... Of course... (laughs) In 1907, on the footprint of an earlier hotel came the Plaza Hotel, which for many years sat right next to that opulent Vanderbilt mansion right there at Grand Army Plaza.
3: And the plaza was designed, at least the second iteration was designed by architect Henry Hardenberg, who had also designed the Waldorf Astoria for the Astor family down on
2: 34th. Right. Now you you see you can you kind of see what's happening here. They they had similar architects. They all kind of looked the same. Mm-hmm. So vaguely French or German renaissance chateau. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me read to you from the New York Times about the opening of the Gotham Hotel in 1905. And again, the Gotham w- was
3: the, the peninsula.
2: Is is today's peninsula, correct? There are 400 sleeping rooms, single and en suite. The rooms opening on Fifth Avenue have already been spoken for. The furnishings of the Gotham, while extremely rich, are far from garish. There is not the slightest striving after gaudy effects, the whole atmosphere being one of good taste. The main dining room is designed in the Italian style. The color scheme is red and dark green. And the massive pillars supporting the ornamented ceiling are a part of the general effect of stateliness. Hmm. So essentially... Sounds
3: very tasteful.
2: Right. They were basically tasteful companions to all these different mansions. So there was no fear, of course, at least in the early days, that there was going to be a lot of riffraff on the streets.
3: It's also interesting that this is a hotel, I I guess, a hotel review in the Times, and yet they're already saying that even before the Gotham Hotel opened, the Fifth Avenue rooms had mostly been accounted Mm -hmm. for. They'd already been rented out. So this was a residential hotel. Uh Right. And I guess that makes sense, right? Because they have these lovely ballrooms, even larger spaces than people could afford to have in their own mansions or their own, you know, Mm -hmm. their own opulent residences, Uh, So it makes sense that wealthy people are moving into these hotels, which sit side by side with the mansions that are still there. But, of course, when I think of these hotels today, I think of taxi stands and Uber drivers um, and doormen who are helping people with suitcases. (laughs) That is to say... Tourists. So when did that happen?
2: So it's a general change in how people view hotels, right? Which happens over the decades, but, but in itself contributes to these mansions eventually being torn down because hotels would go from glorified apartments mm-hmm. to more transitory spots for people from out of town. Uh, as, as tourism becomes a bigger thing in New York, these hotels become, of course, largely valued for their location. You know, they're they're here at places that tourists want to see that creates more foot traffic, drawing people who don't live on Fifth Avenue to this place as a destination. Soon, these hotels became public spaces far more than they were when they were originally constructed. That would, of course, spell out and change the culture of the street itself.
3: Okay, so I'm understanding then how how this section of Fifth Avenue through Midtown here mm-hmm. uh, is changing yes. welcoming these residential hotels mm-hmm. staying rather upscale yes but what about this section of fifth farther downtown because we've talked about this in various shows for example the Ladies Mile show mm-hmm. and the Garment District show we know that things became different on lower Fifth Avenue. By
2: the start of the century, there was almost wholesale demolition of these old mansions below 23rd Street, virtually wiping all of them from existence. And while, while some of these places were... Were replaced by apartment houses and hotels, which might be relied upon to keep up the quality of the neighborhood.
3: Ugh, most of that's the, in quotes, in quote.
2: <laughs> most of them were being replaced by something that was less socially acceptable, and that was the manufacturing loft. The New York garment district, as we had mentioned, we have a whole show on this, was born in the Lower East Side and employed tens of thousands of people. And actually made a good percentage of all of the United States ready-made clothing. It was growing so rapidly that at the beginning of the 20th century, these merchants with their huge manufacturing plants could afford to demolish these old homes build their new factories, and eventually they took over the lower stretch of Fifth Avenue. One famous example of these is close to Fifth Avenue on the eastern side of Washington Square Park, the Ash Building, which in 1911 was the site of the terrible Triangle Factory fire. But so these kinds of structures were being built all throughout this area and up towards 23rd Street, a bunning, of course, Ladies' Mile. And this happened fast. By 1905, a majority of the mansions, in particular between 14th and 23rd Street, were replaced by factories, office towers. And, you know, this wholesale destruction of things that was going on, this mass wave of construction. Well, this is just a microcosm of what's happening all over New York. There was an unprecedented amount of destruction in New York City at the start of the 20th century. From the New York Times, June 30th, 1907, quote, The buildings torn down in New York every year would make a city as large as Poughkeepsie. The money they cost would have paid for the Williamsburg Bridge. Last year, permits were issued for destruction of 618 buildings in Manhattan alone. In 1905, records show 756 structures destroyed. Thus far, permits issued in 1907 for the destruction of 337 old buildings. That makes a total of 1,700 buildings destroyed in Manhattan in 30 months. So what's happening here on Fifth Avenue is a kind of a heightened version of what's happening all over the place.
3: And needless to say, people were not terribly concerned about historical preservation at this moment either.
2: No, but you know who was concerned were some of those merchants And homeowners in the middle of Manhattan and, of course, those who were further up, which we'll speak about in a second. Now, this is my big metaphor for Fifth Avenue here because we needed to kind of sort sort the different stories that are Mm -hmm. happening. Think of Fifth Avenue like a wave, something that eventually starts at one end that will eventually make its way to the other end, okay? Now, imagine the merchants and the homeowners who lived on these upper stretches of Fifth Avenue. Imagine you had just built your mansion here in the upper Fifth Avenue area, and you were looking down south. This was the wealthiest street in America, it had a reputation. It's why you built your house there. right? You were looking down at all of these factories being built and you were thinking, would my golden street here be demoted to such pedestrian concerns? And of course, behind even a lot of this was one component of the Garment District, which may have raised some concerns among these older families. And that is the fact that the Garment District largely employed immigrants. Those immigrants who lived in the Lower East Side and other places.
3: They were fueling the the whole growth of the industry. Waves of arriving immigrants um, in the 1880s and 90s and 1900 were fueling the entire industry.
2: Now, of course, many of the shop owners and and those who owned restaurants and places like that were aware that the days of these palatial residents on Fifth Avenue, that those days were numbered, most likely. But couldn't the community keep the reputation of the street intact like was there a way to basically wall off that wave from traveling up Fifth Avenue and decimating the identity of what Fifth Avenue had become
3: so they're concerned about the brand if you will of Fifth Avenue did they succeed in building some sort of wall because certainly Fifth Avenue still has a reputation today a hundred years later And that's all
2: thanks to a group called the Fifth Avenue Association, which formed in 1907, with the motto, quote, to conserve at all time the highest and best interests of the Fifth Avenue section.
3: But this change seems inevitable. So what did they do? What was their strategy? The answer eventually was retail of the
2: highest variety. To this day, Fifth Avenue is the most valued real estate in the United States, still- because of the association's incredible success in preserving a very conservative look and feel for the street. Now, from a really excellent book on this subject called The Creative Destruction of Manhattan by Max Page, quote, The central idea behind... The Fifth Avenue Association's advocacy was to retain an exclusive retail and residential area where immigrants would be scarce and beggars absent, where the most flamboyant popular culture growing on Broadway would be held in check and where a genteeled commercial culture would hold sway.
3: So that's really interesting that the Fifth Avenue Association is formed in 1907. They're fighting this fight to keep this stretch of fifth Uh, quote, exclusive, it sounds like, just as things are really heating up along Central Park on Fifth Avenue.
2: Yeah, if you think of this wave example again, you know, the crest of the wave began lower Fifth Avenue in the mid-19th century. The inclination to build wealthy houses has now arrived here at Central Park East the rich are still magnetically drawn to Fifth Avenue. Like, that didn't change. Mm -hmm. While the Fifth Avenue Association is fending off the city's changes that are happening on Lower Fifth Avenue. Tom, earlier in the show, Mm -hmm. you had mentioned that up here in the rarefied air of Central Park's Fifth Avenue, Mm -hmm. uh, that... That Mrs. Astor had built a home here at 66th and 5th Avenue, and thus this occasioned a new spate of construction along the park's edge here, right near the start of the 20th century. Right, in the mid-1890s. So who were some of the families who joined Miss Astor here on the Upper East Side? Well, the year
3: after the Astor House was completed in 1896, William Whitney bought a home at 68th and 5th, so just a couple blocks up from the Astors, and hired Stanford White to to lavishly renovate it. And like many other families, he would then construct other homes for other members of his family. For example, six years later in 1902, his son Payne Whitney and his wife Helen Hay Whitney built a lovely home at 972 Fifth Avenue, which was 10 blocks north of here, uh, between 78th and 79th Street, also designed by Stanford White. That's the Whitney's. Uh, In 1899, Frank W. Woolworth built his home at the northeast corner of 80th and 5th, and like many others, built homes for his children. In this case, three daughters. Uh, he built them homes just around the corner on 80th Street, all of which still exist today. Woolworth. Well,
2: so this is, these aren't old New York families. These are definitely people who have made it rich and have moved to New York to to basically plot up their own domain.
3: Right. Woolworth would not be alone in being self-made millionaires up on Upper Fifth Avenue. Another self-made man, of course, who built up here was Andrew Carnegie, who in 1902 constructed a 64-room mansion at East 91st and 5th. This was really north of everyone else. He, he even threw up a spiked fence you know, to add a little protection from the wilderness outside, and he bought up property around his house to control who his neighbors would be. His massive home, uh, designed by Bab, Cook, and Willard, sits back from the street and was surrounded by gardens, which was an unbelievable luxury at the time. He essentially defined and dominated the whole area here. Right. So much so that, that this area would become referred to as Carnegie Hill. And like Woolworth and so many others, he also bought a home for his daughter next door, And Carnegie would live here for the rest of his life until 1919. And his, his wife, Louise, would remain in the mansion uh, until her death in 1946. And it really is one of the most beautiful still-existing houses, not to spoil. Spoiler alert, still exists.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the most beautiful houses in New York City. It's also interesting when you see the house to imagine that when it was constructed, it was just up the street from the Metropolitan Museum, which was there by that time. And of course, Central Park lay stretched out in front of it you know, had been there for several decades before.
3: And also that it was surrounded by many empty lots, you know, some of which he controlled, uh, including one on 91st and 5th, which he sold off to his friend Otto Kahn, who was a German board financier. Kahn constructed an 80-room mansion here between 1914 and 1918, a block north of this at 92nd Street Felix Warburg built his family a six-story mansion at 92nd and 5th. Meanwhile, 10 blocks south of here at 82nd Street in 1899, the same year that Woolworth built, uh, you'll be quizzed on this later, (laughs) Benjamin Newton Duke of the American Tobacco Company bought another French-style mansion that was already located at the southeast corner of 82nd and 5th uh, because developers were by this point putting up mansions as Mm -hmm. well and trying to sell them off. Trying to
2: appeal to some of these wealthy families.
3: Right. So Duke buys this French-style mansion here at 82nd and 5th and buys another one for his son on 89th Street. But it was his brother, James, known as Buck, who built probably the most famous of the Duke houses in 1912 at the northeast corner of 78th Street. That was 1 E 78th. And it was here that James raised his only child, Doris Duke. So interesting. It's it's like this
2: extravagant building craze has continued unabated to anything that I said earlier in the show. They're just building these large mansions, but they're facing into a park, not facing each other.
3: And I haven't even mentioned Henry Clay Frick. Um, Who bought up James Lennox's old library. Remember that place down on 70th? Mm -hmm. Because by this time, by the 19-teens, Lennox had long ago uh, merged his famous library with the library of Samuel Tilden and the library of Astor uh, into what would become the core collection of the New York Public Library.
2: Which, of course, would be on Fifth Avenue (laughs) on the spot of that old reservoir on 42nd Street.
3: And meanwhile up here in the spot of his former library, Frick would construct his dream house, designed by Thomas Hastings and constructed between 1913 and 1914. Frick himself would only live here for 5 years until his death in 1919, but his widow would remain living here until her death in 1931. So you get the idea though that this stretch of Fifth Avenue was referred to as Millionaire's Row. Really for you know, from the eighteen nineties until the nineteen teens. And it wasn't just lined with these mansions. There were also still some brownstone townhouses mixed in, but it was these mansions that defined the stretch and really made it world famous at the time. And
2: what you were describing specifically is this concept of mansions. Because of course, more kind of forward thinking. Rich people were moving to other districts of wealthy apartment towers and and penthouses, such as the Upper West Side and Park Avenue.
3: Right. And this is also illustrated in the plight of the mansion built in 1911 by William Andrews Clark, who was also known as the Copper King, because I think he topped just about everybody else when he built a 130-room french renaissance style palace uh which really looks like a missing chunk of the louvre right Mm -hmm. plunked down at 5th and 77th designed by lord hewlett and hall it was actually beaten up in the press unlike so many of these other palaces uh it was beat up for being just too much over (laughs) over, (laughs) excessive and and even ugly What was the room
2: number that took it over the top? I mean, was it 100, (laughs) 110 rooms, 120 rooms? By
3: 126, (laughs) they were like, enough. But the amazing thing about Clark's Mansion, right, is that it's constructed along Fifth Avenue in 1911, and it was demolished in 1928. This palace wasn't even around for two decades. And of course, that's not just the Clark's Mansion. This, a similar fate had happened to so many others before, and would eventually happen to many of these
2: mansions on the. Central Park, Upper Fifth Avenue wing of our story here, because, of course, the Fifth Avenue Association could only do so much in preserving the class of Fifth Avenue. The Fifth Avenue Association would become one of the most successful civic lobbying groups, I think, in New York City history, perhaps in American history. By the 1910s, this area of Fifth Avenue, above 42nd Street and below 59th Street, Mm -hmm. Midtown, 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 Fifth Avenue, became locked in a sort of cold zone. Advertising and gaudy signage was banned. There were no saloons. There were no theaters. It would, of course, eventually draw retail, but of a finer class than the middle-class department stores that were, for instance, gathering around Herald Square by this time they were even partially responsible for the famed zoning law of 1916, which limited the height and construction of skyscrapers. So just think of Fifth Avenue in your head. Fifth Avenue has one of the tallest buildings in New York on it. Right. The Empire State Building. But think of the stretch between 42nd and 59th Street. The buildings aren't as high here. Well, isn't Rockefeller
3: Center, technically along
2: Fifth Avenue? No, but if you'll notice Rockefeller Center, and I'll talk about this more in a second, the tallest elements of Rockefeller Center, the skyscrapers, are on the Sixth Avenue side. That those buildings that are facing on Fifth Avenue are shorter in height and, to be honest, are kind of less interesting. And that was done in accordance to some of the regulations that were eventually enacted thanks to the Fifth Avenue Association. They were also, in part, responsible for creating the Garment District. In 1916, letters ran in all of the newspapers organized by the association, these against the Garment companies. This letter was signed by all the major department stores, including Macy's, Sachs, Lord & Taylor's, saying they would only buy products from any manufacturer that was located in this special zone. Uh, between 33rd Street and 59th and 6th and 7th Avenues. So essentially, that is the birth of the Garment District, which still exists today.
3: So it was the department stores that pushed the suppliers and manufacturers away from them. Yeah, it was kind of an extortion, right? Because they wanted to keep the, they wanted to keep retail
2: and manufacturing separate because when it spilled out, it was just a big mess and it made retail districts undesirable. So because of their efforts, Fifth Avenue, remained a purely retail destination by the 1920s.
3: Apparently, that was before the customers had any concern about where their products came from (laughs) or interest.
2: Relatively speaking, sure.
3: But it sounds like the Fifth Avenue Association was successful in pushing away the producers. Did the department stores then move in and take those spots? Department stores were already... Introducing themselves onto Fifth Avenue, by 1914,
2: Lord & Taylor had already opened in 1914 down on 38th Street and Fifth Avenue, but other department stores soon ventured above 42nd Street, including, of course, Saks Fifth Avenue on 50th, which opened in 1924, and Bonwit Teller, which opened at 56th Street, and that opened in
3: 1930. But these department stores are really big spaces. I'm I'm assuming that some of them were taking over properties or or the land that had formerly been mansions. They had taken over bundled properties,
2: of course, because they these department stores required so much space that they would be built on the spot of multiple old houses. Although in nineteen twenty eight, Bergdorf Goodman moved to the corner of Fifth Avenue and 57th Street. And they didn't need to knock down multiple mansions. They just needed to knock down one, the massive home of Cornelius Vanderbilt II, the one that sat right next to the Plaza Hotel.
3: Wow. It seems like Bergdorf Goodman could have benefited from retrofitting Cornelius's <laughs> old mansion. I mean, that seems very on-brand because... Others would, right? Yes.
2: So some of the houses would remain and they would become boutiques. For instance, Helena Rubinstein moved into the mansion of Collis Huntington for her makeup and spa boutique. In fact, when you walk down Fifth Avenue today, you'll see buildings of different heights. It's kind of difficult to tell which were former mansions because in a lot of times the mansions just occupied very small areas of land, and those were demolished and replaced with boutiques that looked vaguely mansionish, ish
3: Mansion-esque.
2: <laughs> Mansion-esque, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, they even kept some of that beaux Art aesthetic to make it blend into the street a little so bit. So they were
3: emulating the mansion style. Yes. Even though they were being replaced by stores. Right. But there are a
2: few mansions that still exist today. I'll talk about those in a second.
3: Okay, so you've taken us through really the 1920s here where 1930, most of the mansions south of 59th Street have been demolished or right. partially incorporated into boutiques or stores. right. But north of 59th Street, even today many of them still survive and they survive because they were also converted but not into
2: retail above 59th street the mansions were converted into museums and other cultural institutions for instance the felix warburg house Mm -hmm. you mentioned
3: on 92nd street
2: yeah that was built in 1908 today that's the home of the jewish museum The William Starr Miller House on 86th
3: Street is today the Neu Gallery for German art. The Whitney Mansion uh, between 78th and 79th became the French Embassy Cultural Services. Uh, Doris Duke's house that I mentioned at 78th Street Mm -hmm. became the NYU Institute of Fine Arts. Well, old Carnegie
2: Mansion mm-hmm. uh, survived for many years in the family. His widow lived there until the 1940s. The house then passed on to the Columbia University School of Social Work. And in 1976, became the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, which is today, of course, the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. And last but not least, not to have favorites, but my favorite Fifth Avenue Mansion Easily is the extraordinary home of Henry Clay Frick, which he actually constructed to eventually become a museum. His wife lived there for many years after his own death, but then it was converted into a museum and is a
3: fantastic one that
2: still exists today.
3: Okay, well, those are all mansions that still exist along Central Park's eastern edge. But what about in Midtown? Are any of those still around? Well, I want to point out, two
2: addresses in particular because they lie on old Vanderbilt row one of them is at the corner of 52nd and 5th Avenue it's a former mansion of the Vanderbilt's one of these many Vanderbilt properties I didn't get to speak about earlier they built a lot (laughs) they did but it was purchased in 1905 by a man named Morton Plant and Mr. Plant was a financier and the son of a railroad tycoon. It's like a standard-issue monopoly mogul of Fifth Avenue, this son of a railroad tycoon. Well, like so many of these families, Plant would eventually move uptown, up Fifth Avenue. He would build another mansion and live there on 86th Street. He would sell this mansion... This one on 52nd Street in 1917 would sell it to the Cartier Company, which was a French jewelry company. So believe it or not, Cartier has been on this corner for 100 years.
3: And how much did Cartier pay for this old mansion that (laughs) Vanderbilt? Well, they they paid $100.
2: $100? That would be $1,900 today. Oh, I should add, $100 and one string of pearls. A pearl necklace featuring 128 pearls. That was valued at $1 million. And today that's $19 million. So essentially it was a house purchased for a
3: necklace. That is an amazing story, and it kind of gives me a gag reflex <laughs> at the same time.
2: Well, then maybe you'll want to go next door Ugh. to the Cartier, which was also a mansion. It was a twin to this Vanderbilt property, 647 Fifth Avenue. It survived, transformed in 1995 into the house of Versace. And what did he pay for it? A, a silk blouse? <laughs> the price of a handbag. No, no. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how much the he bought the house for. However, those are relatively small compared to the many houses that we've spoken about in these past two episodes. Modest, really. But if you want to get the sense of what one of these huge mansions might have been like, but here in Midtown, you need to actually trip on over to Madison Avenue between 50th and 51st Street. For it was here in 1884 that... A gigantic mansion was built for Henry Villard, the railroad magnate and later the owner of the New York Evening Post. That, the Villard houses, that structure is still there. So go there, soak in the opulence, the beauty of that place, and just imagine it being in in essence replicated
3: up and down the street of Fifth Avenue. We thank you for joining us as we have followed the rise and the fall of Fifth Avenue mansions, join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there will be many photos of sumptuous residences along all stretches of Fifth Avenue.
2: We'd like to give thanks to those who support us on Patreon. Your support helps us make the show a better listening experience. As well, we provide extras for Patreon members to listen to. And we have events throughout the city throughout the year. So join us over on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys to support the show. And we want to thank those who already do.
3: We really couldn't be doing so many shows without your support. So thank you very much for listening. Have a
2: great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
3: Hey, everyone. This is Tom. Just a quick note that Season 2 of HBO's series The Gilded Age is now live on Max, And that means so is the official Gilded Age podcast, which I'm hosting, along with Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. Every week, we dig deep into the drama and the history behind what you see on your screen. If you like the Bowery Boys, the Gilded Age TV show and podcast is made for you. Listen to HBO's The Official Gilded Age Podcast on Macs or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentyx works on both.